name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. For 15 months, a journalist was attached to a platoon of soldiers in Afghanistan. Short time to spend with them, given the long time many of them spent there. But in his time there, he observed some interesting things about how they did life together. He observed that um, they truly depended upon one another in every aspect of life in that place. And everything they did, even down to the smallest detail, was open to public scrutiny, even among officers he watched in some cases. Whether one drank enough water, whether one tied their shoelaces, whether one took sufficient provisions for the day were all parts of their common life because it impacted everyone, not just that one individual. And as he wrote on this and watched this play out, in one article he reflected on uh, watching two privates and how they had this rather rash disagreement about what seemed so small. One accosted the other for trailing shoelaces on his boots as he walked out of camp one day. And he said, you know, I watched this and realized that this was a big deal. Because if something happened, and he said, I observed that when something happened there, and it often did quite suddenly, um, everyone would need to be at their best. And these untied shoelaces could mean that that private would not be able to keep his feet in a moment when he needed them most. And so they held one another the highest standards, even in the smallest ways, because it was never anyone's personal safety that was at stake, but rather the safety of those around them. And that required being held to account in every little detail of times together. I share that because um, military imagery is often used a lot in Scripture, and rightly so. Paul employs it quite often because it gives us a framework. We're on a common mission, the household of faith, um, and our common life together is often ordered in a very structured way um, towards a common end. And the church is called to hold one another account towards that common goal as well. Um, the beauty of Anglicanism is I don't pick your readings every week. They just come in a cycle. And so um, we get some readings that are rather difficult from time to time. And Second Thessalonians is certainly one of those. Um, so this morning, there's actually three really big boulders, three topics therein um, that are quite hard, but we're spending a bit of time in. And maybe this military imagery gives us a framework for the reason for which Paul addresses them. So I'd invite you either open in your Bible or uh, follow along in your bulletins or on the screens with this passage as we go through it together. A little bit of context, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, you may know, are two of Paul's arguably earliest letters. And that's important because the people to whom he writes, the church in Thessalonica, um, are a, a group of believers who came to faith in Christ Jesus early on and expect that Jesus is going to return quite soon, um, most acceptably in their own lifetime. So they've made some very radical changes to how they do life toward that end. And as the months turn into years and that timeline becomes uh, a bit more unknown than what they had anticipated, it poses some challenges as they continue to live and work in community together. And so for that reason, Paul writes this this one particular issue, he says now in verse 6, as you read, right, 
Uh, now we command you, brothers, which will return to why he commands them in a bit. Um, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. So this, this first time we see idleness, the first of two more in this short passage, is the topic for this section of Paul's letter. Now, when we hear idleness, we often think of laziness um, or a listlessness. But biblically, it's, it's much broader than that, and this is maybe where some military imagery helps us. What, what that word really means there is, is to step out of line, to not be rightly ordered, to, to live in a disorderly way in relation to others. And so what Paul is, is talking about here, <clears throat> and as we see, is some, we don't know why, um, in their community have chosen not to work and therefore are putting the, the, the greater community at a greater taxing rate towards that end. Now, um, unlike Acts, where they held everything in common almost out of command, the church in Thessalonica chose to do that. That's one of kind of the radical ways they chose to live. They, they held their own jobs. They held communal goods together. They took care of the poor, those in need in their midst, and the advancement of the gospel in their context. So these, in verse 11, who are called on a play on words, both in English and in the original language, busybodies, um, who are busy kind of fluttering about, um, these are those who are idle, not because they're not necessarily even doing anything at all, but some of them would go and work for others in the church and hold odd jobs from time to time, but never really invest in any one place. And so the church was burdened to take care of their well-being, because that is what they were called to do. And this is not the first time Paul's written on this. So it seems harsh, but he wrote on it in 1 Thessalonians in his first letter. They didn't listen, and now he's got a little bit of a firmer tone as it's coming up a second time. So Paul, of course, then tells them, this isn't what we told you to do, verse 7, 8, and 9. Um, we lived in a different way, so imitate us. We'll look at why he says that in just a moment. But before we get to how Paul addresses this and the command that he gives, perhaps we should pause and ask ourselves, what, if anything, does this have to do with St. Barnabas or any church for that matter today? Certainly, we live in a very different culture in a different way. Um, this is not a particular issue, at least on the surface, that we could see as being one um, that is needful in the life of the church. But globally, it is, if we zoom out a bit further. Globally, it is in terms of how we do life together. If we replace work, quite literally, with making a living and the church taking care, quite literally, of the welfare of individuals and sub that out with a broader topic of everyone doing their part in the life of the church, it's universally applicable at that point. And I think that really is the, the, the teaching that comes forth. And so we'll use this as a framework. Um, verse 13, I believe it is, a little later on, Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good. Um, what he's saying is, I'm telling you a lot of hard things and don't grow fatigued at hearing them or doing them. And so the first topic for us um, is toward that end. Don't grow weary of doing your part in the life of the church. Um, when I first started out here at St. Barnabas 11 years ago now, last month, um, the, the senior most priest in the diocese, when I was coming over at, at the young age without kids, looked at me and said, you know, Father, everything you need 
is there in the church to which you'll go. And I thought, oh, that sounds really high and lofty. Um, and I didn't have any clue what he meant. Uh, the, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I saw the wisdom of what now is, is probably 50 years of his ministry still among us in the broader church. Um, the church functions when all use their gifts and talents. When all use their gifts and talents. Everything is needful for the life in a particular place and for her advancement of the kingdom in a particular place as well. Paul's kind of addressing what the church often called the 80-20 rule, um, where often a small group, Father Greg calls them the faithful 40, I believe. He's good on alliteration. Um, uh, where a small group pulls the weight of the broader whole. And that's not a, an indictment on St. Barnabas. It's just a, it's a principle we see in churches more broadly. And it should give us pause to ask ourselves, am I doing my part? Am I contributing to the good of the whole? Am I helping toward that end? And the reason for that is not just so that we can say St. Barnabas is this thriving place or look at how many people we have or what our budget is, but perhaps now, as much as it was then, the broader reason is because that is the example the church sets in the world. So the reason Paul's so concerned with the nitty-gritty details is when the church is beginning in Thessalonica, he's keenly aware that for the church to have a good example in the world around them, the culture around them, they're looking with scrutiny as to how these, these weird believers of the way, as they were called, live in relationship to one another and in the culture in which they live. So Paul knows that their witness is, is not so much just about they and their own relationships, as important as that is, but it's also about the impact that it can have or can't have in the culture around it. We still, in North Texas, have at least a little bit of insulation of kind of uh, being part of the Bible Belt, depending on how broad you draw that belt, um, and, and the impact that it has. So we've not seen uh, the full impact of the, the radical secularization that colleagues of mine in the Pacific Northwest and others just tell me about. Um, but it's there. Um, and for the church to do what she does best, not just in caring for her members, but equally as important, bringing others to come to know and love the Lord, um, they look at how we relate to one another and how we relate to the world around us. And so it's important for us to sit with that question of where am I in relationship to that? Where am I in my investment to that? Um, and if I'm not, um, someone probably is over-functioning and not using gifts that are quite theirs to use because ours are being underdeployed in that way. So it calls us to sit with that question. If that makes you a little squeamish, buckle up. It gets a little more squeamish before it changes if we look back. Because what Paul tells us as he goes forward in, um, let's see, verse 11, I believe, is where we pick up, maybe. There we go. Oh, verse 9. Um, is he's continuing on to say, um, you know, it's my right to, to say this. I, I'm not forcing you, um, but I'm going to command you. Um, that in the midst of this, here's how you deal with that. Um, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, I hear, again, there's that, that play on words. There's idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Each should be encouraged to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Um, so Paul is not asking. He's not suggesting, you know, church, here's, a, here's an idea you might sit with. He's saying... My command to you is this, that you do these things. Um, the Western church doesn't like 
commands. Westerners were really individualistic. We don't like the idea, really, of discipline at all. Um, and, and the church, at times, has rightly been um, called out for that because it is abused at times. And so we should weigh all that out, but we should not miss the fact that this broader topic at play is for the, sa- the sake of our own soul's health, about church discipline, but most importantly, about accountability, the accountability we have to one another. Now, remember, of course, we're not talking about how the church disciplines the world. We're not talking about how the church holds the world to account. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, where we sow seeds, where we let the Lord do his work, we pray. But this is about the household of faith. This is about all y'all who call yourselves the family of God, right? It's helpful to remember. So what Paul's talking about here is the need for the church to hold one another accountable toward the end that we do our part Not just to say that, hey, you're not pulling your weight over there, but so that we all grow up in the full stature and maturity of Jesus. That's what we've called our lives to. That's what, through the waters of baptism, we've said we turn to Jesus most fully in. And as we go through life, we have to be accountable to that. And that's a a hard topic. Um, So Paul brings forward this idea that we don't grow weary of this topic of not just doing our part, but also um, this topic of accountability. Unfortunately, in the West, as individual as we are, we don't like to be told we're wrong, let alone that we're, we're, we're moving in a way that maybe we shouldn't. But um, we often, in the West, sadly, have got it backwards. We, we look at it this way. We say, well, the church shouldn't say those things. It's harsh. It's unloving. It's unkind. How will they win anyone if they're, if they're hard on one another? Um, But truly, um, it's actually far less unloving, far more unkind, if the church does not continue to spur one another on toward that end. And so Jesus talks a lot about helping one another grow in a full stature, a maturity of who he is. And so it's baked in, or it should be, into the life of any church. We have it baked into various pockets of our church, right? If you're a part of any one of our Bible studies, you give yourself self-assigned kind of accountability pieces. You know, this passage was on this topic, and therefore my action item for the week is this. So when next you meet, someone lovingly says, well, how did that go? And you can say, it didn't. And they say, well, great. Well, then what can we do to support you toward that end? Um, Pray for me. I'm not there yet. Whatever that may be. Um, if you go through church membership or you're a part of a leadership body, um, we've, we've, we've got this relational covenant about how we deal with one another in healthy ways, um, in biblical ways, right? Not talking about each other or triangulating, but rather speaking the truth in love and addressing our faults with one another. Um, this is how church rifts start over colors of the carpet. You're not there yet. Um, but uh, so that those things don't come down the road, um, we keep short accounts towards that end. That's the loving thing to do. Um, why would we allow someone to continue in error and say, well, God will just sort that out? Sure, the world, we pray for them and we minister to them, but if we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, we must uphold one another towards that end. The final piece, of course, Paul gives us this line of reprieve before we ask ourselves, who is Paul to say these things? In verse 13, He continues with this reminder, which really kind of is uh, the theme for us today. Um, Don't grow weary in doing good. He says that after some hard words to basically say it's much easier to tap out. It's much easier to, um, you know, say this is is more than I signed up for. 
But Paul's saying, don't grow weary of doing these things. It's for your benefit, and it's for the benefit of the whole. And then he gives one last push, which is not an easy one. If anyone does not obey this letter, take note, have nothing to do with him, and that he may be ashamed. But don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then he ends with verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you all peace at all times in every way to do that, the work of the Lord within you. So this last topic, kind of, if we're pulling toward what God is calling us to do, we're accountable towards that end, all of this is predicated on this topic of authority, right? Who is Paul to command these things? Well, Paul not of his own accord, but by the call of God, has been called into this role, not to lord it over them, but to help the church grow up towards that end. Um, this is another topic that the really military framework probably is best. There's a chain of command in the church, and so there should be. The chain of command is always under Christ, Jesus, who is the head, and Scripture that we put ourselves under authority to. Not that we stand over against Scripture to grab what we want, but that we stand under Scripture so that it informs our very lives. And in our tradition, in the historic church, um, there are those called to particular realms of authority. You see, Father Greg and I, most often, we're under authority. We have a bishop who keeps us in line, who checks up on us. Um, and then we're called to be the spiritual authority in a given, given place. Now, we're well aware of what that means not to lord it over you or to say that we're in charge in some way and woe is so great for us. Um, but we're well aware when I wake up in the morning of Jesus' words about those in authority um, who seek that out or who are even called to that, hopefully not seeking it out toward their own gains, where Jesus says that um, if you are in authority, you're held to a higher account. And if you, leaders, step out of line in any way and you find yourselves idle, in terms of how scripture puts it here, then woe be it to you if you lead others astray. It's better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. Those are weighty words with which we carry each and every day in ministry. So I share that to say that it's a collective effort. We're all under authority, and we mustn't miss the value of spiritual authority within the life of the church. And we can't grow weary of that. There are people, there are flawed people in places of authority, but if God has called them in that role, they should be leaning in daily toward the Lord, towards that end. And we, we, we don't acknowledge the person, but we acknowledge the authority that they hold. We do acknowledge them, but um, we follow not them for their own sake or their leadership skills or whatnot, but because God's called them to that particular place. And thus, we mustn't grow weary of these things. And this is what Scripture commends to us. And I think this is the hardest thing for the church, certainly in America, right? It's much easier for us when things get rough or when we get out of joint with one another, um, or, or I hate it if, if somebody gets out of joint with, with Father Greg or I, it's much easier for you to go to another church. That's, that's the easy way to do it. Um, but remember, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonians that is not the first church of Thessalonica, where if they get upset with Paul and his letters, they can go around the corner to the church of the sea or whatever it's called, down the road. Um, that's it. They're either there in the community or they're not. There is no other option. Um, sadly, we have options, and, and, and sometimes we don't grow because it's much easier to, to take the friction points out. But I, I tell you that the friction points usually are where the most growth happens, where we work those out in God's grace with those around us. So church, don't grow weary of these things. They're hard topics, 
doing your part, remaining accountable, remaining under spiritual authority toward that end. But on this Sunday, as we march towards the end of the church year next week, in these reminders of Jesus' second coming, um, as we prepare for that day, we do that through these ways. Because ultimately, when he returns, we talk about Jesus as king in a kingdom. It is not a democracy. It is a theocracy with Christ as head, which we remember next week. And thus, we do well to keep ourselves firmly under his footing in our lives and walking that out closely with one another toward that end. I pray we have the grace and the fortitude to do just that for our sake and for his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.